0: Welcome to this episode of the Medical Affairs Professional Society
1: podcast, Elevate. The views expressed in this recording are those of the individuals and do not necessarily reflect on the opinions of MAPS or the companies with which they are affiliated. This presentation is for informational purposes only and is not intended as legal or regulatory advice. And now for today's Elevate episode. Welcome to Elevate, the Medical Affairs Professional Society's podcast. As a series within this podcast, we focus on digital-first scientific communications, how digital is transforming medical communications. In these podcasts, we speak with experts in the field of scientific and medical communications and discuss how digital transformation is opening opportunities for medical communicators. I'm Jennifer Riggins, a co-host of this podcast. I currently serve as a member of the Digital Focus Area Working Group. I've worked in pharma for more than 30 years, and I've had a focus on medical information, scientific communications, and medical digital. And I currently work for Factimi, a nonprofit consortium of medical information leaders. I'm joined by my co-host, Steve Casey of Omni Healthcare Communications, or OmniHC for short. Steve has been in pharma for over 35 years and has led OmniHC for the last nine years to become a leader in digital-first medical communications. In our last series of episodes, we focused on omnichannel in medical communications. We discussed omnichannel in medical, how it's defined, implemented, and measured. In that series, I think it became clear that medical omnichannel is a communication dissemination innovation that's empowered by today's digital environment. Now we would like to turn our attention to a more recent digital innovation, and I bet you can guess what that is. Generative AI clearly promises innovation in the development and publishing of medical communications.
2: In this podcast, we interview Matt Lewis, Chief AI Officer at Anisio Medical. He is a well-regarded expert in data analytics and artificial and augmented intelligence. He's actively working with MAPS and other societies to guide medical affairs with the incoming AI onslaught. Matt, thank you for joining us today. I know that my introduction doesn't do you any justice. Um, so, could you give us a brief overview of your background and what you're doing with the different societies at this point regarding AI?
0: Sure, Steve. And uh, first of all, thanks to you, Jen, and, and Maps for uh, having me on today. It's a real honor to be able to share my perspective with your audience at this really critical time in, in our profession. Um, but before we start, I should just state that the following comments are my own. They don't necessarily reflect those of my employer and have not previously been approved by Inizio. Um, In terms of how I got here, uh, I've been in life sciences my entire career, 25 years. Uh, My background is a, a mix of molecular and cellular biology, some health services research, peppered in with advanced analytics. I started out in commercial analytics in a company that's now part of AbbVie, and I have a bit of grounding as such in the fundamentals of commercialization. But my first role in medical was as a medical science liaison. After working in the field, I worked in a variety of headquarter roles, such as grants, and patient engagement, publications advisory boards, key opinion leader in global opinion leader management, and medical excellence, and worked on the launch of about 10 molecules and indications before transitioning to the solution provider side of the space about 14 years ago. Since then, my work has focused on strategic planning, advanced analytics, and artificial intelligence. I currently serve, as you said, as the global chief artificial events and intelligence officer with Inizio Medical. On the society side, I've been really fortunate enough to be able to share thoughts with MAPS leadership earlier this summer on the promise of potential of AI to help medical really reimagine its future and have been assisting the MAPS executive staff in the production of a forthcoming white paper on the topic alongside other members of the partner circle team, if you will. Uh, Beyond MAPS, I I co-chair the artificial intelligence task force for ISMAP of uh, International Society for Medical Publication Professionals with uh, Keith Goldman at ABVI serving as the other co-chair. Um, this task force has developed an AI position statement, which will be published shortly, and will likely serve as guidance for some colleagues in the space to adopt policy and positioning to advance the field. I've also co-authored the United Kingdom's Healthcare Communications Association's AI Roadmap, which has a, a bit of a broader scope, but a similar aim to catalyze action in the space.
1: So hi, Matt. Um, As Steve said, thank you again for joining us today. And that is, you know, a really great resume of what we're going to be talking about today. So when I look at AI and in particular natural language processing, I think about how we can use these new tools in the medical information space. You know, doing things like drafting documents, helping HCPs find information more easily, maybe implementing chatbots for both HCPs and patients. So how do you see the new generative AI models changing what medical information has been doing, especially in the context of chatbots and information dissemination?
0: Yeah, Jen, that's a a great question. I mean, I actually had this exact conversation with the vice president of medical affairs quite recently, just at the beginning of the month. This uh, this particular individual works in a very specialized therapeutic area, and his company gets queries from clinicians and investigators and, and other folks out in the world on an ongoing basis, and in addition to needing to provide relevant information, it has to be timely, it has to be current, it has to be actionable, and staying up to date with the literature is, is always challenging. But getting content through the approval process sometimes is even more so. We talked about the way in which AI has been able to help really up until the introduction of generative, which like came about with the with JAT-GBT and and the rest late last year such as through conversational AI, which can extend and enhance the ability of human colleagues to be accessible to clinicians, both at hours and on days when our staff may not be in the office, such as late at night or on the weekends, and also by focusing on queries that don't always require a trained expert or by following up with inquiries to ensure that appropriate considerations are made. And and all of this is just like the traditional or light or legacy AI that's been stood up for the past few years now with generative we're starting to see real transformation in the entire ways of working medical information how we determine what needs exist what queries will be put forward how we craft responses how we design develop and deliver dynamic content that's, that's a lot of d's and also the type of media that content can take for example does it like you don't know, have to be written text every time or can it be a visual abstract can it be an infographic could it be a chart maybe it'll be a personalized video at some point in the future but our conversation didn't just end there, because when you start remodeling the business with AI, it's kind of like pulling on a, a long red thread. The challenges that live in medical information, like with the customer experience, with improving outcomes, they often apply to other aspects of medical affairs and, and sometimes might be transferable.
2: Matt, before we get too far into the AI discussion on medical communications, we, we've we been exposed to discussions of AI, but, you know, as you mentioned uh, we don't have real solid understanding of it just yet. A lot of us are, are re- reverting to like generative AI as being Chat GPT or things like that. But really, could you give us a, kind of an idea of what you think about AI, how we should think of AI, where generative AI fits into the broader dis- AI discussion, and how you're differentiating between AI as artificial intelligence or AI as augmented intelligence?
0: Yeah, sure. Sure, Steve. Of course. So, I mean, your aud- audience might be really interested to know that the term artificial intelligence was created. It was, it was a kind of a you know, manufactured term, if you will, fashioned, architected, if you will, in a workshop, not unlike the ones that our teams broadly facilitate with their partners in support of things like scientific platforms. A very, very similar discussion. Before artificial intelligence existed as a term, that field was largely referred to as intelligence amplification, as in amplifying or strengthening the innate intelligence of humans. But when researchers described it that way, the people in the field could never seem to attract enough private or public funding to the levels desired. So they held this little workshop at Stanford in the early 1950s, and it was decided that they would rebrand the field as artificial intelligence, indicating that it was computer derived methods of improving intelligence. And it worked, I think, only too well because... The AI term, this idea of artificial intelligence, computer-derived intelligence, stuck, but it also kind of like manufactured this whole Hollywood industry of robots and AI, like taking over the world and stealing people's jobs and the like, which you know is an unfortunate byproduct of the manufacturing of this idea of AI. Now, I think when people reference AI, they're either describing this large class of technologies that use computers to provide alternative mechanisms of reasoning beyond what a human can provide, like language, vision, and other modalities. But within Anisio and broadly, when we refer to augmented intelligence, we're specifically describing a human-centric design pattern. This comes from Gardner, where the emphasis is on leveraging computer innovations to improve human cognition, decision-making, efficiency, reasoning, and effectiveness. Humans are both the alpha and the omega in augmented intelligence. It's about... Humans leveraging AI being better than either humans or AI alone, that's really what augmented intelligence stands for. Generative, ChatGPT and the like are so meaningful because they really make this promise of augmentation a possibility and a reality today. It's really never been something that can actually be achieved in the real world until generative has first come into the world as it has now over the last year, year and a half.
2: Matt, that's such a great answer. Thank you so much for giving us that background and information. You know, you and I have had some conversation about how generative AI can change medical communications. And in the introduction, we mentioned that generative AI is opening up a whole new transformational opportunity in the development and publication of communications. Can you talk more about this and your thoughts of where this evolution is going to lead? Yeah. Uh, I used to
0: say, uh, Steve, that, that I don't have a crystal ball, uh, you know, but, you know, I've kind of been trying to look around the corner wherever possible. But, you know, now now I just referenced the William Gibson quote that, you know, the future is here. It's just not evenly distributed. And I, I think that is really true, especially nowadays. You know, there are some teams out there that are probably be listening to this that they're already implementing and standing up generative models within their environment. Others might be using and deploying ChatGPT or other applications to just kind of see what works, experimenting, if you like. And others are still trying to figure out why they even have a a, a kind of policy in place that prohibits the same. So it's not that, you know, the future is coming. It is already here. It's just just not evenly distributed. Uh, You know, I was just at a generative AI conference in Boston. It was a a cross-vertical meeting, including discussions with folks in finance and banking and hospitals and defense and telecom and retail, life sciences, everything. And I think what we're witnessing here uh, in medical affairs is also happening in every sector of the economy. And it, you know, it's not just at work, if you will. I mean, I've been in this space for 14 years, specifically in AI and advanced analytics. And there, there used to be a time when you could go and speak with a team, whether you're in-house at a sponsor company or on the consulting or agency side, and then go home and do your thing at home and kind of hang up your shingle for, for the day and be done. But now it's not just at work. Like when you go home, Our sports are being analyzed and narrated by artificial intelligence. Our movies are being recommended to us by Netflix, which is powered by machine learning. And a lot of music is either being generated or copied in deepfake by AI, which is also synthetic media, AI, generative AI. And we're seeing reactions in the film media and in politics. So what's going to happen? I I don't know. I'm not certain. But I think many of us will look back on this time, the end of 22, the beginning of 23, as, as an inflection point, the end of the beginning, perhaps. We've been working in AI, I've been working in it for 14 years, and for most of that time, AI has been like a a point solution, a tactic. Over the next few years, I think it's going to become more like an everything app. Everything we do will kind of run off a a master artificial intelligence-driven operating system behind the scenes. All our platforms, all our services, all our apps, all our content will be powered by artificial intelligence. Such to the point that it won't even be mentioned, kind of like how we have electricity now. Like we don't really say, like, oh, you know, we're using electricity to to use my computer or power my light or turn on my my iPhone. It's just there in the background. It's like everything we do in medcoms and all medical affairs, life sciences will actually be powered by AI. Is it going to happen by Christmas twenty three? No, I don't think so, but it's coming.
1: Yeah. So I, I, you know, I find all this pretty cool and. Um, really interesting to think about and think about the impact that it's going to continue to have over the course of time. So um, thinking in that kind of framework, can you give us some insight in how you think some of this AI may impact medical affairs and medical communications in particular?
0: Yeah, sure. Well, I mean, it's it's already here, like as I mentioned before, but but more is getting possible every day. I mean, I think the AI that you read about in today's journals reflects tech that was current 10 to 12 months ago as we know because there's such a long lag time between science and discovery and publication so what is available now is almost an order of magnitude better and the models are better and are improving quite quickly so the the technologies that's coming out from OpenAI and from google and from facebook and from all the other companies are so much better than they were last year that it's almost unbelievable and they're getting better by the day but in medical affairs a relevant use case is something maybe thinking about like understanding the landscape in a given therapeutic space like there there used to be a time like back when i was an msl 22-ish years ago when the standard of care in an area didn't change that frequently and that highly relevant papers didn't appear all that often which was quite helpful actually um, but in many disease states those days are long gone like the, i think the pandemic proved that you know in itself where upwards of 10,000 articles preprints and other scientific assets were emerging literally every week during the height of the cri- the crisis and keeping up with that type of avalanche of data just it's just not possible no human can do that even if they spent their whole career from this point forward to the time they retired just looking at that 10,000 set of of articles and that just in that corpus, it's just not possible, and it changes every week, so just you can't keep up. But we actually did that. We partnered with Moderna at the beginning of the pandemic to stand up an AI-powered literature monitoring solution, which augmented the abilities of their internal staff to scour the landscape, surface relevant signals, and suggest relevant actions for members of their executive team and their medical affairs group. And we support a number of similar platforms right now with groups like AstraZeneca and others. Recently, won some awards in medical excellence. But I think these are just like initial examples of widening the aperture, helping groups see what's possible out in the world and thinking we don't have to make sacrifices. We don't have to make compromises. We don't have to say, like, you know, if we have a, a search frame of, 100 keywords or mesh terms that we want to include that we have to just limit it to, you know, the last two years or just these key terms or just, you know, the ones that are full text versus the others, because we don't have the time or the bandwidth to look at everything. Now we can complement that with an artificial intelligence approach and find all the content that's relevant, auto summarize it using AI, highlight what's relevant, stand up the metadata, make it accessible and speed time to decision for our clinicians and patients.
2: Wow. For several years now, I've been saying that medical communications is undergoing a digital transformation. When I say this, I I mean that developing and disseminating communications in the old print manner doesn't really deliver the impact, and medical communicators need to adopt a digital-first mindset. This is really where we're developing our communications to be accessed, consumed, and shared digitally. I noticed that you recently posted a link to an article from the Harvard Business Review about where companies should start with generative AI. When I read that article, I found the author was talking pretty much about my mantra of digital first and moving it into the generative AI world. He talks about a subset of knowledge work called WINS, being, and that's the most susceptible, according to him, in being replaced by generative AI. For the audience, what WINS means is it's work that is dependent on the manipulation and interpretation of words, images, numbers, and sounds. Matt, both of our organizations fall into this area. Our focus at uh, my group, OmniHC, currently surrounds using generative AI tools to augment the existing communication process, which we hope should lead to improved cost and efficiency. You're undoubtedly a leader in the use of generative AI in medical communications, how are you using it today, both personally and through an Isio?
0: Yeah, it's interesting. You know that conference I mentioned uh, in Boston that I was just at earlier this week is actually the 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 person who organized the conference is the is the lead author of that. Wynn's paper that you just mentioned in HBR, Paul, Paul Bayer, who's, uh, who organizes that, that meeting that I was just at. So there was a little workshop at the conference I was just at where they took folks through the framework. And it's really interesting because on in that article, which maybe you guys could have as a link to this, this, uh, this session, the session, that there are different ways of kind of thinking about where firms are. And I think if you're in professional services, like we do consulting, for example, or on the agency side, you're in the top right of the framework, which indicates that a lot of our work, given, you know, that it's language driven, it's, highly technical, there's expertise that's required, it can be augmented with generative AI. And then if you're working, say, in life sciences or biotech or medical device or digital therapeutics, you're in the top left, which is also standing up generative or artificial intelligence to improve target discovery or other aspects of, of the business. So being in the top is you know, really an area that's you know, ripe for for augmentation and consideration. I think that's it's a really helpful way of kind of seeing the world for, for those that are looking to kind of get started. Um, speaking about getting started, I mean, I, I think I've always been, you know, really interested and passionate about the space, and and how I've gotten really deep in over the last year, year plus is really just a, a mix of kind of curiosity and experimentation, and, and also we're seeing a lot of uh, kind of practical implementation within and across to, to client teams, if you will. But you know, what am I using today, and what what is Inizio kind of doing? So let, let me maybe start with Inizio. At, at Inizio, we we've been implementing. AI powered solutions for, for over eight years. We, we have more than a hundred projects successfully completed across biopharma, biotech, and medical device that leverage the kind of traditional or you know light AI implementations of things like machine learning, deep learning, natural language processing for use cases across the whole medical affairs stack, things like you know scientific platforms, lexicon, publication planning and writing, patient lay summary, field medical, omnichannel, and beyond. Uh, and our team really does, because of this, have like really the broadest and deepest bench in industry. And we have now over 200 active experiments internally across our initial Medical division to explore how can we work smarter to ensure that we're really kind of staying at the leading edge on behalf of our clients as the ground really like moves beneath our feet, which is, is doing quite quickly. You know, personally, by by my count, I've reviewed and tested over 500 unique applications that are generative AI powered in the past six months. I try to test at least 10 new applications every single day, including weekends, which you know does get a little tiring, but it is also quite interesting. And as as that experience grows, the way that I approach many of the tasks in my own work and my life has has shifted as well. I mean, like one way to bring some color to this is by highlighting a little bit of a like practical example. I mean, I I travel a fair amount, right, for work and for fun, but I, I don't always know a lot about the places I go to before I get there. And I, I really haven't worked with like a travel agent in quite some time, and never really found Google to be a great source of local information that's like, both practical and helpful. So since Generative came out, I tried ChatGPT, I tried Ask Pi, the other that's Deep Pines model. I, but since then, I've been really consistently relying on BARD, Google's experimental product, for producing detailed itineraries for work trips and for personal trips, both here in the States as well as in Europe, including England and Ireland. And it's surpassed my expectations, really. I mean, it's really great. It has, like, really text detail and images and photos of, you know, areas for itineraries that might be worth considering. And I've suggested this as an option for folks that really haven't had the best success with ChatGPT. And I've heard from people in medical affairs that this is a really nice complement to plan, you know, reunions or trips people are taking to hike, uh, you know, to see some ruins uh, in the UK like the Roman ruins for example where they wouldn't have gotten information that otherwise uh, is accessible but just, you know, can't can't be pulled down. So that that's a, a, a kind of practical way of of thinking about it. Um professionally, I think my pro- my approach is really to to developing conversational narratives especially around panel presentations or keynote presentations like for example I'm doing a keynote at the Maps digital innovation meeting in Chicago in, in a fortnight has completely changed as, as a result of generative. I've I really found AI to be kind of like a welcome partner, like a thought partner in ideating and testing and validating and really expanding initial concepts. And I now am running like multiple pilots on the creative and digital and learning transfer aspect of live experience interactions to both strengthen the narrative, but also think about how we can be more efficient with my time so that it's effective for my audience, but also consistent with other things that I have going on in, in my professional life. So, I mean, that's an end of one, but in my experience, I think I'm a better speaker, a better coach, and a better consultant because of AI. And I think it's really invaluable.
1: So I love those examples, Matt. I think it's really um, pertinent to, to how we're using AI right now and, you know, how we might be using it in, in the future and, you know, I just love how you've been able to incorporate it into what you're doing on a day to day basis. Um, It's just a really good practical examples. But you know, I think that there are still a lot of challenges that we need to overcome. And one of those is really around data security and possibly the proprietary nature of it. it. And really, until we can answer those issues clearly and overcome the open source fears that ChatGPT has spawned within pharma, I'm not sure we can truly harness large language models to improve the efficiency of communication development. So in your opinion, Matt, are there things we're doing um, from all the different societies that you're working with or within your organization that can help mitigate pharma's fears, you know, regarding security and confidentiality?
0: Yeah. uh, Well, first of all, a lot of these fears stem from direct experience that people have with the consumer version of these apps, or people, you know, using apps on personal devices in organizations that have a policy that ban their use professionally. You know, having that prohibition or the exclusion of uh, the use of gender in the in the enterprise. Uh, really kind of stifles innovation, and we do not condone such exclusions. We, do, we don't have one, say, within an ISIO, and the societies, broadly mentioned before, don't you know, broadly prohibit them either, or that you'll talk about some of that in the policy statements that are forthcoming. Um, when the consumer applications, though, first came out, there was a lot of risk, You know, a lot of concern, but many of the more broader tools that exist now, like for example, you know, the models that underpin uh, ChatGPT, for example, now have enterprise licenses that are directly available to organizations like Lilly, or Pfizer, the larger consultancies, if you will. Any company that wants to transact directly can do so through an enterprise license, or they can work with a consultancy like ours to stand up a bespoke model directly within their cloud environment or access it through an API that limits and mitigates the vast majority of the risk. So. A lot of that initial concern that existed with the consumer apps, the consumer uh, technologies, if you will, is not a concern for enterprises. Likewise, a lot of the hallucinations that folks experienced initially on with ChatGPT for the consumer population are not real risks, if you will, in the life sciences enterprise when working with an experienced team that has gone through security protocols using specific data sets, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, within a, a data science environment. Uh, but definitely, it's been something that folks have seen in a kind of superficial consumer environment, if you will. Uh, at Inizio, we have a security, governance, and compliance team that ensures that no applications come into the hands of our teams or our clients that are not safe, ethical, secure, and appropriate with respect to data privacy and other expectations. And and this is an evolving space. I mean, it's it's something that we've paid a lot of attention to over the last eight years, but even as generative becomes more and more visible to the to the teams and to groups at large, you know, we're looking at ways of kind of raising up the considerations around things like ethics and governance and you know data privacy in the different jurisdictions in which we play as, mm-hmm. as well as things like data provenance and you know intellectual property and all the rights. So it's it's certainly not a, a fully you know satisfied topic, uh, but it's a, a lot safer now than it was, you know, even 10 months ago.
2: Yeah, and I don't know if you know this, but Matt and I met when we were serving on a social media metrics committee. Matt's expertise in data analytics was extremely helpful to the group in really trying to better understand metrics and how they can be used. Matt, if you don't mind, can we put our metrics hat back on and maybe you can give us some insight into how you see AI assisting in what I call the elusive perfect metric, which shows how a specific article is generated or created uh, air quotes impact or air quotes against sustainable value.
0: Yeah, Steve. Sure. I know that. First of all, I know that you've ever taken your your metrics hat off, and I don't think I've ever taken mine off either. But you know, thinking about things from that perspective, which is really about like beginning with the end in mind. Um, you know, most of the metrics that are currently in use across you know pubs, but you know, across the broader medical affairs environment as well, were. You know, originally designed to measure outputs of a system that is you know, the, the kind of medical affairs system, if you will, that is essentially pre-AI. And as we begin to enter the post-AI era or the AI native era, if you will, I think your audience will begin to see a bunch of new key performance indicators that reflect the value drivers that medical is becoming responsible for, some of which were, I'm going to say, referenced in the new McKinsey 2030 paper that was issued earlier this week and which are now achievable through these types of innovations. Many of these things reflect things such as efficiency, effectiveness, engagement, as well as the time to decision. That is how long it takes to submit an article to a journal, for example, or produce a patient lay summary. That time matters not just in terms of cost incurred for all involved, but also the opportunity cost to researchers in the field, what they could have been doing with that time if they weren't toying away at the third submission, the third resubmission, et cetera, et cetera, or ultimately the health costs to patients suffering from the condition being discussed. If we can speed time the publication and ultimately understanding, hopefully outcomes will improve for patients and the population at large.
1: So Matt, in our last series, we asked our interviewees about the impact of omnichannel. And specifically, we delved into how omnichannel impacted changes in clinical behavior. And although we geared it to be HCP-centric, none of the interviewees' responses really could pinpoint um, or really point to evidence that omnichannel did in fact impact clinical behavior. So, do you think that in the future we can incorporate AI into the assessment of Omnichannel to show the impact? Or do you think that we'll see some variation of Omnichannel that may be hyper geared towards being HCP centric due to AI?
0: Yeah, it's a, it's a tough one. I mean, I think those responses really reflect the relatively early maturity curve of Omnichannel in medical. When you look at Omnichannel outside of life sciences, say in the big banks or in fintech, it is definitive that when executed well, Omnichannel definitely shifts mindsets and behavior. And as a regulated industry, finance broadly is somewhat similar as a sector, though not the same as our industry. I do think though that AI will more like catalyze the actual implementation of medical Omnichannel so that teams will both improve their confidence and be able to do more, have broader scopes, execute bigger, longer campaigns, and see more durable effects, and in doing so, the type of responses you get will shift, if not because of the assessment itself, because of the fact that the interventions themselves are just so much more robust by like 10x, so maybe even 100x, you'll see just really profound effects where people are starting to kind of tease at what might be possible in a short amount of time, 6-12 months, you're going to really see profound impact.
2: Matt, as you might know, I'm one of those people that has to know how something works so I can figure out how to use it. Generative AI is still based on algorithms, like the old search engines had secret had their secret algorithms. Do you think that as generative AI continues to improve, we'll see more explainable AI where the user can investigate the AI model, its expected impact and potential biases to help characterize the really the accuracy, fairness, transparency, and outcomes of what that AI decision-making process is doing?
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, we're already starting to see a lot of this in the space, you know, both in terms of the uh, lack of kind of explainability initially, as well as kind of like what what kind of underpins hallucinations and like why those happen and what they are and you know, are they features are they flaws like why why they exist and how we can learn from them like for example i know there's a lot of work going on right now in the higher education space like in universities in the u.s for example where when a hallucination occurs from a, a large language model which is a you know, essentially a prediction that ends up not being true that um you know the the, the teacher in the space of professor can help students recognize why that may have been a suggestion and then help them think critically about that alternative hypothesis, and get people to think about a, a world in which that hypothesis could have come true, and think about all the interconnections that might be possible. So they're using kind of the hallucination as a as a, a teaching tool, as opposed to something that went wrong or that you know happens to be factually incorrect. Of course, that's not uh, uh, something that can be applied in all settings; it may not be appropriate to say in life sciences, but is an interesting kind of consideration as to to ways of making the model work for us when we don't really know what's going on. Uh, within our environment, we work directly with Microsoft and the OpenAI team, and we we talk to them a- at length about you know why uh, you know certain hallucinations are the way they are and why they, they don't seem to make sense to us, and you know they don't know any more than we do in terms of like why they produce certain outputs and you know why they can't explain why one output is the response versus a different output, but you know they're they're still interrogating those underlying models and trying to get them to kind of show their work, so to speak, to to use an old kind of uh, you know kind of grade school kind of analogy, and you can get through a lot of this now in when you in some of the more advanced models where they'll they'll explicate or show in python for example or other code sets what's actually happening when they produce an outcome if you will so you can see a little bit more of why things are happening the way they are but it doesn't necessarily offer more of an explanation as to how that came to be or why they went down that path so it, it doesn't necessarily give you a lot of comfort necessarily that it's Doing the right thing is still requires some prompting or some training or some fine tuning to to get to a place where you feel you know a little bit more comfortable about both the the desired response as well as the one you actually get. You know, in the conversations we've had with medical teams, with leadership at, at medical organizations, and and folks that are working alongside them, uh, we we haven't really heard of you know explainability or lack thereof as something that teams offer as a reason why they don't want to engage with generative. They, they probably do feel it you know truthfully but they don't really express it they i think we definitely should be working towards making that kind of black box if you will of of explainability a bit more transparent but there are so many human factors with regards to ai that if this is like the only one that's addressed and all the other ones ignore like I have like a laundry list of human factors if you will, that are relevant for, for this space. I, I'm actually doing a talk on this next week and we will have failed our colleagues. We said, if you don't get the, the human factors right and you just focus on the technical or technological factors, then AI doesn't work. Because ultimately AI is about amplifying or augmenting human capacity and the, and the human piece is, is imperative.
1: Hmm, that's interesting. So, Matt, we all know that healthcare providers cannot keep up with the amount of information that's coming to them daily. You know, it seems to me that with generative AI, medical communicators could produce a lot more publications and communications, you know, perhaps even creating a bigger fire hose of information. (laughs) So do you think that there are ways that publishers and readers can use generative AI to manage this new tidal weight of information? Or do you think there are ways that pharma might better police itself to ensure that they're retaining the integrity of the medical communications?
0: Yeah, this is this is definitely a, a hot topic right now, Jen. I think you know it's it, I have not seen a, a real clear um, approach to this within our space. Uh, you know, in the broader environment, like in the broader economy, if you will, the big focus is on what's called provenance, which is trying to essentially raise up the path of content creation for folks that are consuming media out in the world at large. So, you know, think people that are looking at like an ad on TV or like looking at a political statement from a a candidate and trying to understand what parts of that ad were derived by human contribution versus what parts were derived by artificial intelligence. Right now, when you see such a thing, there may not be a watermark. There may not be an element that you can, say, scan with a camera and look at a QR code and see, you know, this is 40% human, 60% AI. But that providence consideration is looking to make that transparent so that at least the, the viewer of the content can quickly understand and then able to make a determination for transparency and trust. Is this something that I want to interact with and how I'll make a decision around it? An equivalent consideration around providence has not yet kind of really made its way over into our world, but I have to imagine that it's forthcoming. Um, you know, I've seen some of the publishers, like Springer, for example, and others, have been taking a very strict approach to this, where they're prohibiting the use of generative images and text to some degree in any of their submissions so as to kind of like tamp down the total amount of content they receive. ICMGE, WAME, and other groups have weighed in saying that like, you know, AI can't serve as an author in papers and the like. I think that's a little odd. Honestly, it's almost like saying like, oh, would you use Google as an author? You ever quote Microsoft Word as an author? It can't be an author. Only humans are authors. But I don't know. The bigger question kind of remains. Generative AI does lower the cost of creating content. So as a result, the increase in overall content is to be expected. I think it's still early days uh, to consider how this will be moderated, screened, how the providence is stood up. How do we consider it? But it is definitely an area of active discussion. I, I can't say I have an answer.
2: Well, I, I think uh you may have an answer to this last question that I have, but it's just one last question. Where do you see generative AI headed? What do you think in over the next five years a generative AI looks like in medical affairs to you?
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I Steve, I, I like to say, and my team is probably sick of me saying this now because I've said it like a, a million times, but I like to say that a week in generative is like a quarter in the rest of the world because things move so fast. And making a quarter is is like three years. So as such, I'll, I'll give you a sense of where I think we're going to be when we chat live in Puerto Rico at Maps24, which is like six years in generative AI time. So you asked me about five years, but you know, when we're together in, in Puerto Rico in, in Maps at the 2024 meeting, that's like six years in gender of AI time. The world will have changed, on, turned on its axis by then. By then, the, the majority of big pharma companies, that is like about six months from now, most of the major pharma companies will have an artificial intelligence policy and will be working on the shape of or have already stood up an artificial intelligence strategy if they haven't already stood one up now the specialty pharma and biotech and medical device companies especially the more innovative and progressive ones amongst them will also have done the same I also predict that within six months, I will not be as lonely as I currently am, and that a number of other chief AI officer peers will join me in this role across industry, as most of the other industries in the broader society and in economy have chief AI officers already. Um, And the, the, the full kind of continuum of medical affairs will really be starting to think about what programs from an artificial intelligence perspective need to be stood up which ones from an experimental perspective that are currently active need to be killed, which ones get tweaked and kind of grown, what gets scaled as we head into the summer of 24. And I think, you know, the space at large, to Jen's point, is going to be facing an abundance of content, both medical content and generative content. And many of us, including me, are going to be working out how to ensure that it remains relevant, that it's value added, that it's meaningful for our partners, and ultimately for the patients we serve.
1: So I'm really looking forward to uh, MAPS 2024 to see if your uh, predictions come true. (laughs) Matt, Stephen, I want to thank you and Inizio for giving your thoughts on generative AI, what it is, where it stands today, and where we can expect it to go in the future. To our listeners, we hope you've enjoyed our discussion on generative AI. If you enjoyed the podcast, please make sure to like it and feel free to comment to us. You can find our contact information on LinkedIn. Thank you for joining us today and listening to our podcast series, Digital First Scientific Communications, a podcast production of the Digital Focus Area Working Group of the Medical Affairs Professional Society.
2: And remember, if you're a MAPS member, thank you for your support. If you're not yet a MAPS member, I want to encourage you to join us so you can access additional resources. Visit the MAPS website today at medicalaffairs.org backslash membership.